You're listening to The Bridge Metro West, located at 7 Strathmore Road in Natick, Massachusetts. For more information about The Bridge Metro West, our weekly Sunday gatherings, and other events, go to www.bridgemetrowest.com. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, would be pleasing unto you today. God, I ask that you would literally manifest yourself as the word that became flesh and walked. Lord, that your word would walk among us today, would penetrate our hearts today, God. Lord, I so appreciate free will, but I'm asking that you would overthrow it, because frankly, our will isn't that great. But your will fully manifest on earth as it is in heaven changes things. Lord, I love that you stand at the door and knock, but I'm asking that you would kick doors open today. That you would cause your goodness to forcefully blow over our faces and that we would go forth from this place living expressions of the radiance of your being, just as you are the exact representation of the nature of the Father, Jesus, Lord, would, that we would be the exact representation of you on earth. You have made us agents of the kingdom. We have agency, God. You have made us ambassadors for Christ, and you are making your appeal through us, broken vessels. hurting vessels, but sons and daughters in whom your power is perfected in the very weaknesses of our lives, because every joint supplies in the kingdom. Thank you for the body of Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 5, starting with verse 21, says, I'm reading out of the New American Standard today. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet. That's something that seems to happen a lot around God. Oh, well, that's not in the Bible. Well, there it is. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had, who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will be made well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. If I were to title a message today, which I I do sometimes and I don't often, it would be Surprised by Hunger. There's something about hunger that attracts the attention of God. And I've heard, I've heard ministers over the last 20 years on the heels of the revival movements of the 90s say, well, we don't need to be hungry for God. We, we already have all of him that we could ever have. And, and then I, I typically look at them and I said, well, if that were true, you'd be more effective at what you do. I've never said that to their face. I, I just harbor that in my heart, it, you know, because I'm gracious and kind and loving. But it's true. I can remember in, in meetings where people would run to the altar so fast that I, I recognize that if I don't move quick, I'll be left behind. 
Is there something about hunger that attracts the presence of God? You know, as I just indicated, I just came back from South Africa. It was one of uh, the most intense trips that I've ever been on. I've been on many. I've been around the world many, many times. I mean, there was a season, a multi-year season, where I was flying 100 to 150,000 miles a year and not missing a lot of Sundays. It was maybe not the wisest thing that I ever did, uh, but I felt like that's what God had me doing at the time. And in this case... You know, what made it so intense is that I was being pulled in, in multiple different directions. You know, m- many of us have learned about the, the seven mountain mandate. I'm not so much about mountains, I'm more about spheres. I'm, I'm more intrigued about the stories of people in mail rooms and janitors of corporations who have affected change in their sphere of influence because they are agents of the kingdom in the midst where God has placed them. I'm okay with taking the tops of mountains, but uh, we could have the top of a mountain if the rest of the mountain is wicked. It might be hard to change it. But it's not insignificant what you do and where your feet have been placed for such a time as this, that he's placed you within spheres of society to speak truth and love or simply to be truth and love or simply to be love that emanates truth. There's a time to speak. There's a time to remain silent. There's a time to prophesy and there's a time to just hold your tongue and intercede with the revelation that you've been given. And it requires intimacy. It requires living from the tree of life instead of living from the tree of knowledge that allows us or propels us into greater effectiveness in the things that we're called to do and the things that we're called to be. And... In this case, you know, I was doing things in church. We did a couple of conferences, and then in between meetings, I'm, you know, being asked to to sit with, you know, high-ranking politicians and people in governance over the nation. I'm asked to be to sit with people who are in governance over corporations. I'm asked to to uh, go s- sit in a prison for a day, or, or really, what was supposed to be three hours ended up being nearly eight hours. And you got to understand that in South Africa right now, they they have an issue where the infrastructure is is falling apart because the party that is governing doesn't know how to govern, but they sure know how to steal money. It's the reality. It's sort of sometimes the unintended consequences of progress is difficulty. It doesn't mean that we don't press forward for progress, but it means that sometimes as we progress, there's a greater, greater battle in what we faced than what we had in our comfort zones in the previous regime. It's sort of like Israel moving forth from Egypt. You know, once they got out of Egypt, they started looking back because it was their comfort zone. It was easier to live under oppression than it was to press into freedom. May it never be for us that way. Because we're called to move forward. We're called to press in. I've even had heard people, you know, teach that we don't need to press in. I'm telling you, you need to press in. I will go toe-to-toe. I don't care what kind of global ministry or word is coming forth. I'm telling you that throughout Scripture, those who press in receive the promise, and then they become porters of the promise. See, what we receive, we release. We've been talking about being in the import-export business. We are in the import-export business, but if you keep exporting without importing the things of God, then you will become exhausted of your resources. I came pretty close to being exhausted, I think. I certainly was tired. But to be in a place, in a space where you, you got to see the power of God unfold... And not in ways that we might typically think, but a prisoner who confessed to 14 murders that had never been solved because he encountered Jesus and he couldn't harbor that part of his history anymore. And the head of the ministry was was saying, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me, because he knew that would mean multiple life uh, life, life sentences for this man. And the man was like, I have to. I can't carry this anymore. Sitting at the table with a young guy, 32 years old, he's been in prison for 14 years, his name is Anthony, and he said, I have never felt anything before in my life until today, except anger. He's looking me in the eyes and he says, I know what it's like to bury someone alive. Literally. 
I know what it's like to kill someone in front of their loved ones. He was a young man being recruited for a professional soccer team. He was very good at what he did, but he was in gangs and he didn't know how to say no to the gang leadership. And so he became their extension of justice and retribution in their mindset. And again, to see you know, men stand up and not only profess Christ, but to publicly say they're turning from wickedness when it could actually legitimately cost them something. And then for the man who's leading the ministry to say, if there is a high-ranking official of the gang in this room right now, I want you to address me. Because I want your problem. Your problem is with me. It's not with these men. And if you have a problem with me, I will clear this room and you can kill me right now because I'm ready to go for this. The man stands up and he doesn't question him, but he questions each one who professed Christ and said, are you serious? They all say they're serious. Now, this guy who, who leads the ministry, he's, he's such an, a, a dynamic man. He, his wife comes in later in, in the day and she has this amazing teaching on forgiveness. It is honestly the best teaching on forgiveness I've ever seen. Kind of displaced R.T. Kendall's teaching on forgiveness for me, which is, that's a pretty heady thing to say. And she engages in an illustration. And without understanding who she's calling forth, she ends up calling this high-ranking official in the prison gang. There's actually three, but they're, they're all under kind of this one auspice that's called the number. It goes way back to apartheid. And in a sense, they're men of integrity. I mean, there's a high level of protocol. There's a high level. There's a lot of rules and laws in place that they, they adhere to. But she calls this guy to stand. Everybody else in the room already understands who this is. She's just doing her thing. And she calls him forward and begins to talk about forgiveness and, and unforgiveness and all the wounds that we have in our lives. And she begins to tie a rope around him, binding his arms unto himself. He has one hand that's sort of free, but I don't think she knows what prophecy is, but she began to prophesy this man's history to him. I could feel it. And you could see it. Your father left you when you were young. But before he left, he was abusing your mom. And, and then he left, and then your mom started rejecting you. But it wasn't because she was rejecting you. It's because you reminded her of your father. And so you essentially grew up without parents. You grew up without love. You grew up without affection. And so you had to replace it with something else. And this, this anger uh, that you felt like was your strength, that became the center of your being. And all of this unforgiveness and all these other people who began to hurt you. And, you know, in school when you were young and your you know, other kids making fun of you, other kids rejecting you, that you had to establish your own identity. And as she's describing to him who he was, she continued to wrap this rope around him until he couldn't move. And, and she would say things, and you tried, to, you tried to move on with your life, and he would try to walk away, and she would violently yank him back. And I'm thinking, this dude's about to punch her in the throat. Because you could see this intensity beginning to rise up out of his face. Sometimes you, you can't discern whether something is demonic or whether something is pain. Sometimes pain begins to manifest and we, we try to cast out a demon when what we actually really need to do is bring healing to that area of someone's life. I couldn't tell you what it was. It was probably both. Because the demonic is very much in your face there. And she went on like this for about 20 minutes. And, and he would try to walk away, you know, in this sort of example of him trying to move on with his life. And she would yank him back and yank him back and yank him back till they were face to face about this far away. And you could see all of his history, like almost rising up out of his face, this intensity that you can't, I, I, I can't describe it. And finally she said, if 
you are willing to forgive, I will give you these scissors and you can cut the rope. Forgiveness won't free them, but it'll free you. See, sometimes forgiveness isn't really about the other person. It's just freeing yourself from an offense that you don't actually have a right to anyway. We do have a right to the cross, which means we get to die to ourselves and be raised into the image of Christ. Not that he understood any of that. But he looked at her and said, I can't do it. I can't forgive. And so they went back and forth like that for quite some time. Could have been another 20 minutes, which seems like an eternity when you feel that thickness in the room. Prisoners who had been there, some who were there for life, weeping in this moment, inconsolable sobbing, men who had taken lives, men who were willing to take lives, weeping as the presence of God became thicker than any other presence in the room till he got to the point, the voice very soft, very almost cracking, and all he could say was, I'll try. She hands the scissors to him, which I thought was insane. <laughs> and he cut the rope. And he shook off the things that bound him. And this man who just maybe an hour prior had questioned these men standing in the room who were disavowing evil, meaning they were leaving the gang looked like a little boy. The hardness, the struggle, the anger, the intensity that was on his face just a few moments prior, gone with the cutting of a physical rope that represented something deeper. I don't know that he received Christ that day. I don't know that he was ready or willing to disavow his rank in the prison. There's a lot of spiritual things that are intertwined with the gangs and with people in general. But what I do know is that he encountered the king who is above all rulers, authorities, principalities, and powers. And that's how the prophetic works. You know, Verna came up today and, and released some prophetic words, and there were some prophetic songs and, and things that happened. And, you know, sometimes it's so normal to us that we, we don't understand that, oh, this is new to some people. But the reality is that the prophetic is often an opportunity. It's rarely a thus saith the Lord. Even when we read prophecies in Scripture, you know, there's so many warnings, there's so many promises, but many of them are if-then statements. If you're a computer coder, you kind of understand that, that language. I can remember way back, you know, in the 80s, programming basic. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but, you know, there was these if-then statements. If this happens, then this subsequent action will happen. That's often how the prophetic works. You can have an encounter with God, but not allow him to occupy the thrones of your souls. And even in times of revival, there are people that come and they experience and they, they have these experiences and you might even see them move, you might see them shake, you might see them manifest or fall on their face before him. But the reality is they never allow him to take the throne of their heart. So they're never actually transformed. They're just in the cloud of his glory, but they never get to know the form. And it's interesting that right before I left is when this, this thing at Asbury started happening. Of course, I get to South Africa, and everywhere I go, they ask me if I know what's happening in Asbury. It's like they're more attuned to what's happening in the Church of America than we are. And I've spent, you know, maybe sometimes when I travel, I spend a little bit more time looking at social media just because it feels like a taste of home, or, you know, I do bring my coffee with me. I do my own pour-overs. I don't care if I'm in a five-star hotel or I'm in a dung floor rendezvous in the middle of nowhere. I got my coffee because it just makes me feel like I'm, just gives me a little bit of normalcy. And so I, I saw everybody's, you know, people trying to figure out 
and define what was happening in Asbury. And, you know, I saw one young minister saying it's not revival. I saw other people saying it is revival. I don't care what you call it. I really, I don't care. We get caught up in semantics. I was in a whole meeting one time of, you know, quote unquote theologians and slash leaders who were trying to define revival. And I'm kind of like, I don't really care how we define it. I just want kingdom come. I don't care what it looks like. So I think the Lord does whatever he pleases. That's kind of what revival looks like. And I feel like our stream has felt like we have the corner on revival, like we've, we've, we've got the market. And so I, my inter- I'll just give you my interpretation. I might do a little writing or something on it, I, you know, but I, here's, my, here's my thing. It's like I, when I see a lot of noise, I don't want to add my voice to the noise. And I'm trying to discern if that's a false humility or I, just me being cranky or if I'm just supposed to abstain. I don't really want your opinions on the matter but maybe I should get them, but I, I still, I'm just being, you know, full disclosure, I, 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 don't, I don't like opinions. I like the voice. But I, yes, out of abundance of counsel, there's wisdom. I get all that too. So, anyway. So, I feel like we've gone from a First Kings 18 to a 19 moment. And it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. It has nothing to do with what we're doing today, but it does in a sense. All week I understood that God was going to do what God was going to do today. So I'm not thrown by our schedule change. I just felt like Verna was a little late. So if you read that passage, I love it because you guys know I love stuff that blows up. I love the fire and the glory and, and stuff. And, and Elijah is there and, you know, Jezebel is, you know, kind of the ruler, even though her husband's technically the king, but she's kind of running the show. And they've got all the prophets of Baal in the kingdom of God's people. So there's a lot of mixture. There's a lot of things that were brought in. And so... He does, you know, probably something that I would do, you know, I don't know, I would be quite that bold, but maybe I would be, because I am brash, and I, I like to throw down gauntlets, and I'm kind of like that. And so he, he kind of mocks the prophets of Baal, and he says, okay, you guys do your thing. You call upon your God. Let's both build an altar, but we're not going to light it. We're going to let our God light it. So you do your thing, and I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll even let you go first. And then if, you, if your God does his thing, then, hey, you can do whatever you want. So they're cutting themselves and they're doing their incantations and because it's a spiritual principle, it's a spiritual law that everything requires blood. The problem is that the enemy is always trying to counterfeit the cross. See, the cross was the the bloodshed that was done once and for all that we can access that now by faith if we say yes to Jesus and identify him as the king that is above all kings, then we get all the fullness of his promises. Now, the enemy will convince people that you still have to, there's, blood is still required. And we don't see that in America so much, but when you travel and you go to other nations, you see this common theme. And by the way, it is here, it's just under the surface. When we talk about all these demonic um, activities that go on, and I, I can tell you I've been in multiple cultures where the supernatural realm of the demonic activity, it's, it's actually the same. Yes. I'm not going to get into that, but I remember being in Transkai and one of the women there saying, everything requires blood. And I was like, yes, everything requires blood, but the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth has already come and he shed his blood once and for all that we don't have to do any more of that. Everything else is subservient. So prophets of Baal, of course, they exhaust themselves of their energy and resources and so Elijah steps up and he calls upon the name of the Lord. The fire falls, consumes the altar. Not only the altar, but he poured water on that thing just to rub salt into their wounds. And the fire still fell and consumed the altar. And then he has all the prophets of Baal slain. There's a 
whole hypothesis in that. But then what happens next? You'd think, oh, this is a great victory, and you know the prophet has proven himself. Well, he raises the ire of Jezebel, and he goes on the run. And the next thing you know, he's hiding in a cave. And God's like, what are you doing here? I've had people over the years, you know, and ask them how they're doing. There's like, oh, I'm in, you know, there's two things. I'm either in the wilderness or I'm in the cave. Well, the wilderness is a place that God calls you to to prepare the way of the Lord. So stop getting, trying to get out of the very place that he's put you. It's not necessarily the fun place. We like the oasis. You guys know I love palm trees. But I've had a number of people uh, over the years say, oh, you know, well, New England's a minister's graveyard. Well, good. Can these dry bones live? I love it here. I met, actually finally met this guy, Julian, who, who's got his, he and his wife have a church in Boston, and he's South African. And over, over the last couple of years, all these people are saying, hey, you know, do you know Julian? You should connect with Julian. I'm texting the guy. He doesn't text me back. He doesn't know who I am. I still made fun of him and told him he was rude. He's a rude South African, but he's a really great guy. So then I'm in South Africa, and everywhere I go, people are like, hey, do you know Julian? Do you know Julian Adams? You know, I'm sitting with a guy who used to be the head of the opposition party, and we're at a restaurant that is going for a Michelin star. As a matter of fact, she would be the first African woman to have a Michelin star rated restaurant, which if you don't know what that is, it just means really good food. Not only that, this woman gets up at three o'clock every morning to pray for two and a half hours with a bunch of women. Mike, I got to confess, I was a little convicted because I'm like, I can't get up for men's prayer at seven. Come on now. I know. I know. It's okay. I'm going to call a prayer meeting at midnight and see how you do. I'll be there. You probably will. He's got so much energy for a white guy. I got distracted by that food. It was pretty good. Yeah, Julian. So I'm sitting with Moosey, and he's like, hey, do you know Julian? I'm like, you've got to be kidding. And then Tony, and, Tony Kim was with me in South Africa, and he, he sat next to me, and Julian texts Tony. Oh. Now I'm a cranky Bostonian. <laughs> so I go find the messages that I had sent him last year, and I just put a bunch of up arrows. I said, hey, jerk. <laughs> in love. I said, LOL. I said, hey, let's connect when I get back. I was in the church that he was, uh, came up in. And he was an elder in this church at age 23. Sometimes eldership isn't really about age. It's about your stature in the Lord. So anyway, I, I met with him. And uh, we'll be partnering together with, with some things moving on to the future. I don't even know why I got into the Julian story, but... He's a good guy. As a matter of fact, he's going to be coming or at least sending some people to this uh, the creative conference at the end of the month. All that to say that while I was there, I was pulled in so many directions. And it all feels remarkably the same. You know, whether you're praying for heads of government or you're sitting in a prison where you have these rolling blackouts because the, the electrical infrastructure just isn't, everything's breaking and they haven't maintained it. And so they're without power between six and 10 hours a day. Wow. You have to plan your lives around this. So we're in the prison and the power goes out. And fortunately in that room, there was one mini split that was doing air conditioning. But when the power goes out, the AC goes out. So now you're in a room with, you know, 40, 50, 60 prisoners, many of them who are multiple-time murderers, and the heat is rising. You know, things cross your mind. And it was the same pretty much everywhere that we go. And it's gotten to the point where, you know, AC isn't really much of a thing for them. They, they like airflow. I like air conditioning. So it was a hot and sweaty couple weeks. But God was on the move. We saw ears open. We saw demons flee. I was praying for uh, one woman who's a pretty successful politician. The first time that I met her, uh, she was a cabinet-level minister. And I prophesied some things over her. And, you know, 
the light of God is on the nation. And because the light of God is on the nation, it, it, it attracts attention. And so now you have ministries and ministers that want to go there. And some of them are a little bit opportunistic. And so I, I don't know what it is about social media or what it is about people that are trying to affirm their own identity. That's my interpretation of it. There might be some purpose in it. But you know, people will prophesy over powerful people like that. And then when you know, even a shadow of it comes to pass, we put it on Facebook so that we can affirm our own propheticness. And here's my deal. I, I'm not with them to be prophetic. I'm with them to be family. So if I put their pictures on my social media, which I've thought about doing just to be snarky, but that may not be the right motivation, to say, hey, you know, I did prophesy over this woman four or five years ago, and I've met with her several times since, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here just to be family. Not so that I can prophesy over powerful people. As a matter of fact, I don't even like doing that. I really, really don't like doing that. It's very uncomfortable for me. But loving on people, that's easy. I can do that. So she, um, we were, uh, I was asked to, I just did two services and I was asked to meet with her and we were praying over her and then, you know, some of the local people were praying over her. She's running for a high, high level position in, uh, in the nation. And I grabbed her hand and just began to whisper and the demonic began to man manifest on her just like that. Because in that realm, there are a lot of people who are in the church, but there's a lot of mixture. You know, witchcraft is very much an upfront thing. The current administration, the current uh, ruling party, there's witchcraft all over that party. But am I concerned about that? Not, not personally. You know, there's some school of thought of like, oh, well, you know, you, you shouldn't put your hand on them because what's on them might get on you. But my Bible says what's on me is going to get on them. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I was in a restaurant. I was in a restaurant, one of my favorite restaurants, because they have like American-style breakfast. They have some pretty good French toast and stuff. And at the time, you know, they had coffee that wasn't instant. There's more coffee places now. It's getting better. Might be a place I want to go back to now. So we were, uh, we were engaging with our waitress and, you know, my, I call my African babies. They're, you know, Ian and Robin, they've been here. And we were all eating together and joking with the wait waitress and I just gestured with my hand. She staggered back about 10 feet. And then she went into this verbal diarrhea thing, like as if she could not even contain herself. And she goes, you don't understand when I'm not here, I'm a 3,000 year old man. And people come from all around to come and seek counsel for me. I'm Sangorma, which is a high level. You have to go through training, and there's certain fairly horrific ceremonies that they have to go through in order to become Sangorma. And the final thing she said was, and I cannot let what is on you to get on me. And I just smiled. Robin and Ian were kind of horrified because they've been coming to this restaurant for, for quite some time. They knew the girl. They always let the girl, you know, the woman, you know, play with their kid. And they were asking me, what do I do? What do we do? What do we do? I was like, just love on her. She's going to die to a Christless eternity unless it's Christ revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we should be foolish. I'm just saying that we don't live in fear. And when we're walking in that realm of the kingdom, you know, it's that word naturally supernatural. It's not, it's not unusual. It doesn't even feel, it feels very practical. I didn't feel anything strange. I just gestured with my hand. And sometimes when God is on you, just a gesture of your hand is more power than anyone has ever experienced in their lives. Conversely, I, I remember meeting with a, a pastor in Raleigh about 2009. The night before we went, Deb had a dream of a, a blonde woman who said, I don't want programs, I just want presence. We got there and we sat across from his desk and behind him was a picture of his wife who had passed away from cancer and it was the woman in Deb's dream. And he began to describe to me the days of, of revival when the revival movements were breaking out and that, that something dropped in the room, but he was uncomfortable with it. He felt like it was just uh, emotionalism. He kept using the word emotionalism. 
And whenever I hear a leader talking about emotionalism, I, I, well, I know something is awry. And he described one time where he, he was just speaking and he gestured in his, with his right hand and three rows of people went down. And he decided that that was just emotionalism, it wasn't God, and he shut the whole thing down. And when God, you have to understand that when God drops a grace gift on you and you reject it, I'm not into covering doctrine that, that I'm not, that's a fear-based doctrine, but when you step out from underneath the blessing of God, you're out from underneath the blessing of God. And I've seen it time and time and time again with leaderships that rejected the move of God and paid the price. So as those of you who are mature in the Lord have been walking this thing for a while, when he begins to move, you need to be at the ready. And that brings me back to this passage because this is really about hunger. You know, what are you actually hungry for and what are you willing to do to get it? What are you willing to do to get him? The one who supplies all of your needs according to his riches and glory. The one who can do above, above and beyond anything that you could ever ask or think. What are you willing to do to position yourself to draw near while he is near? See, sometimes we get stuck in remembering how God moved in a previous season. And as many times as prophets will say, he's going to do something totally new, that it's, it's not going to be any one place, but it's just going to rise up from, from out of the ground. It's not going to be based on a personality. It's going to be based on a people who are hungry for him. Those words started back in the late 90s, at least as I, and they could have been back even further than that. But still, we, we, you know, I, I just feel like with our prophetic apostolic stream, we had, this, we had this idea that we had the corner on the market of revival and reformation. And so what does God do? He, he drops into a room of young people who for some reason just decide in the moment that they're more hungry for him than anything else. The, the reality is for me, like a seminary is the last place that I would expect revival. I've run across a lot of seminary students and a lot of seminary students who literally walked away from the Lord. I'm not saying seminaries are bad. I just think, I don't know what I think, but it's just not the place where I would expect revival to break out. Well, is it revival? Is it renewal? Is it this? I don't, I don't know. I don't care. I just know that God is there. Because God responds to hunger. And so could it be that, you know, some of us had the opportunity to, to walk through the place where his fire fell and there was this demonstrable stuff. And, you know, I, I mean, I saw marriages restored in a moment. I saw blind people see literally. I've seen, you know, deaf people hear. I've seen people pulled out of wheelchairs. I've seen, you know, metal pieces in, in bodies dissolved and, you know, people uh, regaining flexibility in joints that were bound before. I, I've seen... Uh, you know, demons shriek and mass deliverance. I've seen all of these things, but could it be that God shifted from 1 Kings 18 to 1 Kings 19, and now it's just a still small voice? Doesn't look like what it looked like before, but it's every bit as real and every bit as authentic, and whatever it is unto, it's still God. But it's an opportunity. Even revival in, in, the, in the days that I grew up in it was saturated in it. Everything was an opportunity. It was never a thus and therefore. My personal favorite story of revival and hunger was not what you would expect. But I, you know, I went down to New Life Worship Center in Smithfield, Rhode Island. And uh, I believe it was... Um, yeah, it was Carlos Anacondia from Argentina was speaking there. And let me tell you, like that place was packed. Mm -hmm. 
It was the sanctuary, which sat about 1,200. There were overflow rooms. They laid out cable to set up a projector outside where they could seat more people. And obviously, Carlos being Carlos, and he doesn't speak English, so everything was, was uh, or he doesn't speak enough English. Everything was through interpretation. He, he became this gravitor- gravitational pull for a lot of hungry Hispanics. And let me tell you, Hispanic people know how to run to the altar. You, you put a bunch of Hispanics in the room with white people who've been in church for too long, and you'll find out who's hungry. So he opens up the altar, and I'm like, I, I'm going to get an impartation. But I did what you know, typical white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people do. I kind of moseyed my way. I'm going to defer to my brother. And they're running. And every time I take a step forward, I've somehow I'm still like eight or nine rows deep. So I, I like to play ice hockey back then. So I was like, okay, here we go. I'm going to be here all night if I don't. So elbows out, we're going in. I'm, I'm not saying that's what you should do or shouldn't do. I'm just saying if you want to be like this woman in Mark chapter uh, 4, or is it or Mark chapter 5? Yeah, I'm a little tired. Mark cha- I just read it too. Mark chapter 5, that you might have to push your way through some things to get to the hem of his garment. And so finally I got up there and I'm in the front row and I'm talking like that sanctuary is probably the width, you know, maybe triple this. And there's this long line of people and I see him and some of you have heard this story before but I don't care, I'm going to tell it again. And I'm getting ready because I'm, you got to get ready for impartation. You know, I'm ready. And I see him coming down the line. Some bodies are flying. Some people are weeping. I'm like, you know, I'm getting myself ready but I'm still peeking. Oh, here he comes. And I'm expecting something great because at that point, I mean, they had been a revival for years in Argentina. As a matter of fact, an associate pastor um, at uh, my sister's church in Minnesota, he's the Hispanic pastor there. They have a a Spanish-speaking service, but he's an amazing guy. I might bring him out at some point. But he came up in the Argentinian revival, and his dad was healed of an incurable disease in that revival. First-hand testimony. So I'm getting ready and I'm in my 20s. I know everything. I know how to receive impartation. And he gets to me, and he mutters something and touches my forehead and just moves on. And now I'm, I'm kind of mad. Because, I mean, I'd already gotten some pretty good prophetic words at that point. I'm like, doesn't he know who I am? And I walked away. I just turned around and walked away. And I'm seeing other people, you know, you know, he stops and he spends some time with other people. And I'm like, this guy didn't know who I am. So, I'm so I mean, I fought. Like, I waited. I, it took me an hour to get up to the space. And I, I, you know, I remember I was staying, it was kind of to the right side. And, and I, I turned and was walking away. I was, God, I can't believe that. I just did all of this stuff. And I, 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 I waited and I pressed in and I did all the things that I, I knew that I needed to do. And he didn't even really pray anything. I don't know what happened or what he did because, God, I, I, I just, I'm so hungry. And when I said that, the presence of God dropped on me. Now, I have the standing up anointing, so I didn't fall down. But I have a bodily fluid manifestation, which means I sweat and I cry when God moves on me. And I began to weep, like ugly weep, like ugly cry. When I, when I cry in the presence of God, it brings out all the inner healing people. They want to talk to me about my dad. Like, it's, you know, tell me about your father. You know, let's heal those wounds. Like, you don't understand. I'm in the presence of God. And he's crushing me with his goodness. I cry at Hallmark movies, too. It's the weirdest thing or that show that used to be on Extreme Makeover Home Edition. I didn't even have to see, all I had to see was the reveal. I have no idea why this house is such a big deal to these people, but I see them getting emotional and then I start crying. It's terrible. It gets worse when I'm in flight. I was watching a comedy movie on a flight and something happened, I started crying. And, and that's when the, the flight attendant walks up to you and asks you if you need anything. You're like, oh, no. It's a comedy, it's so funny, I'm laughing, not crying. That's just how I roll. And I stood there like this, so hungry, God, and weeping my back to the platform, the worship team playing, till 
I was the only one left, and when I kind of came out of this thing and I looked around, I saw the people with the backpack vacuum cleaners, you know, vacuuming around me. I decided maybe I should go home now. There's something about hunger that attracts the attention of God. Bill Johnson talks about the dangers of being inoculated against revival. Like, we can get a taste of it, but then we're no longer sensitive to it anymore. Let that not be me. Let that not be you. Significant pieces of this text. I love that it starts with talking about Jesus. He crossed back over to the other side. What was he doing? He was just being Hebrew. The very word Hebrew means to cross over. It's, there's always a crossing over that precedes some sort of breakthrough, some sort of uh, next measure of freedom. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom, and Jesus is the personification of the Godhead on earth. And so he crosses back over to the other, other side, and there's this woman now that sees all these people pressing in, and she's been suffering for 12 years. Look, guys, I know what chronic pain feels like. I had a dirt bike accident in 1996. It changed my life forever. And I've had measures of healing. I've had supernatural things happen to me. I used to be, uh, I used to be laid up every three months. My skin would become gray with pain because the pain was so intense that I simply couldn't move. My drawer was, uh, I always had Valium Vicodin on me and usually Oxycontin back in the day. Now, I don't have chemical dependency issues, so I could take Oxy for five months and stop on a dime. It would freak out my doctors, but I'm like, I don't need it anymore. They're like, you're supposed to taper. I'm like, well, I tapered by stopping. <laughs> I just don't have that issue. And I have some people do, and I just don't. I have other issues, believe me. And we had a glory school here with Patricia King, and there's some things even in that that, you know, theologically, doctrinally, I wouldn't agree with, but nevertheless, she was here, and I love Patricia. She's got one of the purest anointings in the prophetic that I know. And she prophesied Isaiah 60 over me. I remember that, but I don't remember any particular point or moment. I just remember on the other side of that that I didn't need pain medication anymore. It was the worst pain I had ever been in up to that point, protracted over months spasms and nerve pain like it was just absolutely debilitating and I had forgotten about the timing but a few years ago on this little app called time hop it brought up that Facebook post that said I don't need pain medication anymore now it didn't heal everything I don't understand how God works or why he does what he does but I was really thankful to not need pain medication anymore but I still, you know, dealt with these kind of structural issues with my spine because, you know, I was young and riding bikes too fast and people want to find the spiritual roots of, you know, why I got injured and all this. And they gave, one guy came and gave me a list. If I do this, 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 and this, then I'll be healed. And I looked at him and said, I'm not healed because you don't look like Jesus yet. Because I never saw Jesus asking those questions. Now, I think there could be truth in that. If you're harboring unforgiveness and you want healing, then you know, maybe you need to get, figure out how to forgive and then the healing will come. But at the same time, Jesus just dealt with the sickness and the disease. If you've got that level of authority, then we don't need to figure out all the other underpinnings. I don't particularly subscribe or like anything that puts the onus of healing on the one who be, who's being healed. But in this case, this woman who for 12 years finds hope again. She'd been to every doctor. She spent all of her money on treatments and none of them worked. And I, I know what it's like to just not want to go up for prayer anymore. I know what it's like to, you know, go to the altar over and over again, you know, after a season of revival has passed and you're understanding that, uh, you know, it's just not what it was and this disillusionment begins to set in and you're not pressing in the way that you, that you used to or, you know, when the altar call happens. If you do come forward, you kind of mosey your way up because that's what we do. But hunger requires humility. What is humility? Humility is, is knowing who you are, but knowing who he is. Humility doesn't mean that you have to lack confidence in your calling or your identity. Humility just understands who you are before God and understands the disparity between the two. Because when I minister, I can get a swagger in my step because I know who my big brother is. I'm not overly worried about the demonic. 
It's not uncommon, particularly when I travel, that the demonic will begin to manifest just while I'm speaking. It doesn't mean I have to address it. I usually ask the Lord, do, we, do you want me to address this? Because sometimes the demonic will manifest to divert attention or divert the direction of what God wants to do. And sometimes you just got to let the demonic do what it does. And some people, you could set them free, and the reality is they're not really willing to make a decision for Christ and to get rid of the mixture in their lives. And so you could set them free, but they're just going to be in an open house for the enemy to come back in. But here's what I like about this woman. She understood that she was afflicted, but she never let it become her identity. I'm sure there were seasons and times where her discouragement was so high that she just relegated herself or rested in her infirmity and allowed it to become her instead of something that was on her. But in this moment, hope rose up and she took the opportunity. A woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years fought through a crowd of people that were pressing into Jesus and just grabbed his garment. And there's this idea that's in this Greek word about the power of Christ that went forth. That, and I love the way that the New American Standard puts it because I think it's accurate and maybe more accurate than what I've seen in some of the other translations. And it said this. What does it say? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, there was constant power proceeding from God. That's the picture that's in this, this Greek word, that there is a, a, as he walked, there was this constant atmosphere of power because he was God. So there was always this availability. There was always this access. There's not one example in scripture where Jesus went into a place and people who came to him were not healed. There's not one. The only place where we see anything close to that is when he went into his hometown and said he could do no miracles. Why? Because the hardest thing to do is to honor that which you become familiar with. But in this case, she fought through, and I don't know what that looks like. Did she crawl on the ground? Did she elbow her way in? You know, would, would the disciples have said, hey, lady, you're being selfish. You need, to, you need to back up. All these other people are in front of you. None of that mattered. What The only thing that mattered is that she wanted to be near Jesus because she was hungry. And she didn't even garner the attention of his face. She just accessed his glory and grace by faith just by reaching out and touching him while he was near. Then his face turned. There will always be moments of time, pockets of time available to you when your face will turn to him. And because your face turned, his face will turn to you. He was surprised that out of this crowd of many people that there was one who is hungry enough to pull on the power that was already proceeding from him. I know in this house there's many of us that have never experienced a sovereign move of God, what it's like to just move, walk into a space where God is manifesting himself in all glory, goodness, grace, and power in such a way that is, it's just more tangible than you could ever know unless you've been in the room. But I really want that for you. But I can't make you do it. I've been praying and saying for, at this point, years, God, you, you are on the move. Revival is on the earth. Would you just catch us up to what you're doing? I pray prayers that may not be doctrinally correct. God, I know that you stand at the door and, then, and knock, but I'm asking you to kick the doors down. I appreciate free will, but would you overthrow it? Because the word says the Lord does whatever he pleases. I pray that it pleases him to blow down the doors of your heart that you have no choice but to turn aside. Like we talked a few weeks ago, God moved upon a bush in fire, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I must turn aside now. Yeah. 
whatever your plan was, whatever you thought was important in your life, are you willing to turn aside for the one thing? The one thing is Jesus. That's what's available on the earth today. May not look like it did before. We may not shake and quake or have the holy laughter or whatever it is, but it will transform a generation. Because whatever comes to you moves through you. There's a glory that comes upon us that becomes the demonstration of the reality of God everywhere that we go. That's what that scripture means. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not the hope that we put it like we put in a lottery ticket if we buy one. It's this absolute assurance. God will be revealed through you because Christ is in you. But we're in an import-export business. We have to position ourselves to receive so that we have the capacity to export what we believe. I want to call the ministry team forward quickly. Remember, we're not moseying. We're hungry. God loves honest prayers. One of my favorite prayers in the Bible is, God, I believe, help my unbelief. He delights in honesty. The funny thing is, you know, I knew we were going to this restaurant in Cape Town that's going for a Michelin star. It's one of the top restaurants in all of South Africa. I mean, really one of the top restaurants in Africa. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't feeling particularly well. I've been running 12 to 16 hour days. I was pretty tired. And I was kind of bummed because I knew we're going to this great restaurant and I, I don't even want to eat. I just want to go back to the room where I was being eaten by mosquitoes every night and sleep. You know you're in a bad state where you'd rather go be eaten by mosquitoes than go eat a great meal. But something happened. They brought out the first course. And with, you know, when they're going for Michelin star ratings, the presentation, everything is factored in. They brought this thing. And of course, with, you know, these kind of restaurants, they bring tiny things to eat. You know, you're not going to Longhorn Steakhouse where you get a potato the size of your face. South Africans, they come over here, it's like a wonder, you know, the restaurants and the portions and things, but as as, as our Europeans, but so they bring out the first course and they pour like, I don't know, like liquid nitrogen or something, it's all this smoky, you know, it's very cool. And all of a sudden I just, I wanted to eat it all, but I was kind of taking everybody else's cues and realizing, oh, we just eat a little bit and hang out and talk and then eat the next little spoonful of, I don't know what it was. I took a picture of it. It was cool looking. But as I ate, it wasn't super suddenly, but over time I realized I'm hungry. Sometimes the best thing that you can do when you realize that you're not hungering for Him is to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, we want to pray for you, and I, I, I believe there's validity to that, obviously. I want to see some things unlocked in you. I want to see such an aggressive hunger in this house that nothing will hold you back from grabbing the hem of his garment. We have fashioned such a lofty idea of what doing things decently and in order, what that looks like. It looks nothing like kingdom anymore. It just looks like Western churchianity. To me, it looks like Revelation 4. Things are exploding. And I know, you know, we're in a still small voice 
time, but guys, I'm still going to press in for the fire of God to move on the mountain. Because that's my love language, and I'm, I'm a good son. I can ask for that. But I also know what it's like to be crushed in silence in the beauty of the Lord. When you get into that time and you just know in your brain, I'm not really hungry for this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're here and you don't know Jesus like this, this is your time. Some of you right now, I can, I can feel the demonic just trying to shift your gaze. You feel this tightness in your gut. This is your day of freedom. I'm not intimidated by the enemy not intimidated by much it's a blessing and maybe sometimes it's a flaw but we're going to pray a very simple prayer together because I want to introduce you to the reality of Jesus I know that we've gone over time whatever that means but I, I watched the last half of the service last week and watched Jules prophesy and he talked about tarrying and I remembered yeah that's what it takes every once in a while somebody asks me well how did you get to where you are I'd love to say that's because I do all these amazing things right now but if I really had to put it into words it was those days in my 20s where I tarried in the presence those days where not even in church services I came home if you want the full story it's I came home from pumping gas I was a fuel transfer engineer. If you were a girl that asked me what I did. And I packed my tobacco pipe. And I would go sit on the dock. I lived on a lake at the time. Rented a little room. And I'd smoke my pipe and pray. I know people would be like, oh, that's terrible. You know, somebody online is going to email me. That's fine. I don't care. I care a little bit. I get cranky. But I'm just tell you what happened. And I prayed for two hours, three hours, four hours. Sometimes six hours. Some days I just, there was one particular day I got this prayer in my head that some people would say is, you know, vain repetition, except there was nothing vain in my heart. It was this desperateness for God. I just said, hear me, Lord, see me, Lord. Hear me, Lord, see me, Lord. Hear me, Lord, see me, Lord. And I was all alone. When I started praying, it was light out. When I stopped, it was dark. It was about 9 o'clock at night, and this lightning bolt hit the back of my head. And for this nanosecond of time, I could comprehend eternity because God met me there. I can't put myself back in that experience because I've tried a couple times, but I felt like I would go, literally go insane if I tried to force myself back into that revelation. Sometimes you just got to say when you've got nothing else before him, hear me, Lord. See me, Lord. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I'm not hungry, but I, I know I'm hungry. Taste and see that the Lord is good. moments in time where we have to strip down all of the asks and all of the supplication and I'm all for that I really am I'm all for that but you strip all of that down into its simplicity and just say give me Jesus just give me Jesus God would you give us Jesus today So pray this prayer after me. And then we're going to open up the altar space for you just to do business with God, to receive prayer for healing, for breakthrough, whatever it is. But first, I want to make sure that we know Him, that we're on the path to knowing Him. So pray this prayer after me. God, I want to know you. And I accept your gift of life to me. I accept Jesus' death and his resurrection from death that is reversing now the curse of sin and death in 
at my life. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I turn from my way and turn toward your way. Would you please reveal your love to me now? And I will follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for hearing me and honoring my request. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from the Bridge Metro West in Natick, Massachusetts. Paul David Gidry is the senior pastor at the Bridge. For more information about the Bridge Metro West family, our gatherings and events, visit www.bridgemetrowest.com or call us at 508-651-0277.